Um, welcome back. Uh, so Queen Thank is you. no known for a few things, um, but most recent for uh, her narration on Dust Child, uh, which is Ji Nguyen, uh, Fan Kui Mai's uh, recent book. And uh, I got to listen to the whole thing because I, I suck at reading. And, and congratulations uh, on a job. Very, very well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for awesome. listening to both of them. So we're going to get into the whole book tour with uh, Dust Child and, and your work with uh, Ji Gui Mai. But before we do that, we should talk about an event that we did recently at the LA Library downtown. Um, yep. And I bring this up because you and I and our whole, everybody, Chikwe Mai, were all asked to come in Aoyais, right? Yeah. And uh, there was a pretty, it was a fairly big crowd and some people, I won't name names because they're good friends of mine, but they'll be here in this podcast, had brought up this idea of hyper-culturalism with Aoyai. And they were saying, oh, uh, you know, men in Vietnam don't wear Aoyais unless it's for funerals or, you know, they're on stage doing what, and it's barely, it's barely not even, it's, they're on stage acting or doing something and it requires them to, or otherwise it's for a funeral or, you know, they're on in, in all black. They don't wear festive garments like we do or what you wore to the event. And so it wasn't like an accusation of hyperculturalism, but they did bring it to my attention. They're like, so what's up with all this? Can you tell me about this idea of peacocking with in <laughs> Vietnam? I'm using that word. They didn't use that word. I'm using that word peacocking because it felt that that's what I was being accused of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the uh, Vietnamese diaspora scene. So I wanted to know what you thought of all that. Well, first of all, before I answer this, uh, hyperculturalism. I know I hear lots of terms all the time, but hyperculturalism is not a term that I hear very often. And honestly, I can't even remember the last time I heard it. What, what, what was that? Okay, so I think what the person meant is I'm gonna just call him out. It's Benny yeah. Tran. <laughs> I I laughed so loud that it's, it's gonna be cut out, so nobody's gonna know who it is. It was a free yeah, censorship. Gonna, I'm gonna repeat it again. It was Benny Tran. Benny Tran's been on the podcast before. I forget what episode. I'm calling you out, Benny. But uh, Benny did bring it up to my attention, um, and he said, "Well, I I I'm just kind of like paraphrasing here, but the idea of hyperculturalism is like we're making." our culture more than whatever it is, right? So hyper mm. is like, we're elevating it to kind of maybe fit whatever narrative that we need or are responding to, right? So the fact that like, I feel like, I feel like we're being underrepresented in our traditional garb. So now I have to wear an Aoyai to like a function, like a book reading or a book launch. Mm -hmm. So he's like, well, what's up with that? Why, why do we feel like we need to do that? It's, it's almost, it almost feels like a clown show. I'm starting to understand um, a part of the critique or or more like a, a questioning of it because the way that I um, receive it or hear it can come uh, in a few different ways, right? But the route that you're going down just now sounds like starting to go down the road of, you know, um, when it comes to talking about uh, black people and the history of minstrelsy, right? Which is putting on a performance um, that caters to the white gaze um, and is a fundamental 
um, undermining and disrespect of one, you know, one's personhood. Um, so that's that's like a it goes that goes down a very a deep and 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 in many ways a very a very dark route, right? And then on the other end of that, I've heard the same thing said to me when I was in high school, and uh, somebody said the same uh, something. Somebody asked the same thing, like why. No, they didn't even ask. Somebody in my high school said to me, oh, my sister says that the Aoyai should only be or, you know, should only be worn during weddings and funerals. Otherwise, it becomes you are, I think the it was like you are cheapening the Aoyai or something like that, right? Or or more so like you are appropriating it into a sphere that it was never meant for, right? So that's like two completely, di- not com- two completely different things, but it is pretty dif- distinct because one is about gaze and ca- a catering to a gaze. And the other one is about like uh, inappropriate adornment. I love you know this. I- this is two very distinct. And I'm going to give you a third thing, no pun intended. <laughs> Gaze, as in not the gaze, like the eye gaze, but like uh-huh. gay men. Uh-huh. Only gay men are wearing aoyais in public and straight men don't. So that's another gender topic that I would love to get into too. Yeah, like yeah, mom, yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom calls me out on it and says, you know, some of her friends, like men that are, you know, new new age men are wearing aoyai in the community. And she's like, that's very gay. So it's like the gays are wearing aoyai, which... You know, you see Tang Wing and his partner wearing it on the red carpet or out and about. And so the question now that I'm having with you is like, let's break it all down. Gender, let's talk about the menstrual, let's talk about everything that has to do with this idea of wearing Aoyais out in public. And how far can this be pushed? And how? What, what do you mean how far can this be pushed? Like, I want to wear it every day. I'm I'm just using this as a as a uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I want to yeah. wear. What if I want to wear it every day? What if I want to wear an aoyai to the grove and I want to go shopping and put on a kangdong, you know? And just hell yeah! And you, I just want hold on, like any everyone anyone who's listening to this conversation right now, I need you to just go YouTube Dust Child, uh, allowed, you know? Okay, so go go onto YouTube, look up allowed, like A L O U D dust child and you're gonna see the live stream of the event and you can open it up and watch to see how fresh ken's aoyai is like i kept on talking about it this aoyai was so beautiful and on top of that the kind of fabric that you used is a hundred percent the kind of thing like it looks like some of the stuff that i wear to the grove on any given wednesday you know and i will say that it's so interesting to I actually I think I can tie two of those pieces together because if we're talking about gays, right? And like entering the cat and by the way, I do want to make that distinction. The reason why I talked about the history of minstrelsy for black people in America in particular, um, is because like that is its own very, very, you know, distinct thing. And the and and so the reason why it is it can be so painful to see is because of like this this very fundamental 
um, being forced into the disrespect of symbols that represent your own people, right? So that's just I I just I just want to call out and and the reason why I wanted to make that delineation so that it's not it's not mixed up into in what we're talking about what we're what we're talking about more so is the idea of catering to a certain gaze because it looks more Vietnamese right but the interesting part about that is that we're tying in concepts of 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 patriarchy because you're talking about your mom and her friends finding it effeminate and unmasculine to wear an aoyai. And so in when we're talking about this, we have to also apply our own, like we have to apply like the American masculine lens on it. We have to apply the Vietnamese masculine lens on it. Because where, where did we adopt the idea that wearing the aoyai on, like wearing the aoyai is not kosher, right? Is not, is not okay or is not, um, is not acceptable or appropriate because, and, and perhaps it's because we don't have a relationship to it that is um, spiritual and re religious by nature. Because I know that when I am among, um, when I have been among Pakistani men, I have watched them, like I've been around them wearing their traditional dress, which by the way, looks looks pretty similar to yeah. the Aoyai, you know, it's probably one of the, you yeah. Know, they're all like derivatives. Yeah, one of the traditional outfits that, that are, that remind me the most of the Aoyai. And I find it to be so, like, it's so masculine, you know, it's so masculine. And they have talked to me, like, when I've been with with a group of Pakistani men um, in the past, and they've talked to me about their dress, how they feel in it, the, the relationship to their, their the what they're wearing, as well as, like, their beard, it, it has, like, this, this pride in it, right? But we... We live, um, we, the members of the, the diaspora, but also we, we can extend this beyond because I, I find that even folks in Vietnam have a, a that kind of relationship to the Aoyai where it's like, um, oh, we don't wear Aoyai. It's not something that, it's not something that we do. We, we wear it to weddings and, and funerals. And sometimes we don't even wear it to, to, to weddings. Right. Um, I, I think that the ways that people have applied their meanings to these things are one, extremely diverse, yeah. but the most common thing is that it is not common, right? The most common thing is that you don't see it a lot, which is the only reason, because if they, if folks saw it more frequently, then I don't think that the, the, curiosity about the choice would even arise um in after they saw you on stage in the Aoyai, you know um and so i just i i i feel like the the application of um what is acceptable and unacceptable or more like what's appropriate is a an interesting one where whereas if I just go back to the basics in this situation, it was because Jikwemai is very, very proud of being um a Vietnamese person. She finds the the traditional uh, attire of our people very beautiful, as do I. 
and and it is the most obvious way that we can present to uh, our, our fellow Vietnamese people. Uh, you know, ha over half of that room was was Vietnamese. You know, um, to present to our Vietnamese people and also beyond our Vietnamese um, community uh, that that we are like we are all we are all Vietnamese and we are like so lucky to have an attire that is that beautiful. And I will say that um, prior to, yeah, like that is not something that I see very often. And when she asked us, so it was me, you and Jason, uh, Jason Nguyen, who was playing the, the Dang Bao that day um, to wear our Ao Yai, we all obliged uh, very excitedly Please. Quickly, yeah. quickly, quickly, like without, without, a pause, without <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, yeah, because, because symbols and representation are what we make of it, right? Like we create our own symbols and we create our own meanings. So in, in that moment, if your mom or her friend applies a meaning that they formulated, whether they formulated that when they were young in Vietnam or was or that's something that they picked up over time when they came to America. Who knows, right? But it doesn't matter because it is a meaning that they developed and deepened and then decided to apply that to this this visual. Just so as let me, yeah, let me ask yeah, you yeah, this. Yeah. So there's 98 million, close to 99 million people in Vietnam. There's two to four million, whatever, floating around the diaspora everywhere you go, right? So if we in America in the entertainment field is wearing our eyes out, do we, here's a question. Do we give a shit about what the 99 million other Vietnamese people going, ha ha ha, these clowns are wearing their like their garb because they want to be hypercultural. You know, they want to just push something that really is non-existent to the rest of the Vietnamese world. Push something like the, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Like what I guess, to the short answer is no, like we, we don't, I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't want to speak for you, Tikumai and Jason, but I, I certainly, um, it's not that I don't care, right? That you said like, do we care? Or do we not care? It's not that I don't care. It's more like it's, it's, it's an, it's an impossible, it's an impossible thing to address because it's all about symbols and meaning, right? Whatever you ascribe, whatever you ascribe to this is whatever, however you will read it. So if you think that wearing an ao yai make, makes you look like, I can't even repeat it because it's so, <laughs> makes you look like a clown uh -huh. show, then that says something about the way that you are reading it, right? And if we have a, if we had a history in which we like a group of men and women putting on their yai, performing something for an audience that fundamentally degraded them, it like if we had that history, then we absolutely should be conscientious of what that symbolizes, right? Right. right. So now we need to address Benny. Benny, why do you think it's a clown show, Benny? <laughs> point the gun right back at you man you're right you're absolutely right it's how we envision our own because what if today we planted that flag we are now we just arrived on the moon we planted the flag of saying our eyes throughout the world 
is the new standard for wherever we go. And the 99 million people that are in the motherland is going to see that, oh, these fuckers planted a flag. So now when we step out of the airport, we're just going to wear our yai. How about that? How about that yeah. one for you, Benny? I'm not, I'm not sure if Benny will. I'm not sure if that'll resonate with him or not. But but yeah, like again, ultimately, kind of tying it all together, it's it's about the meanings that we make, right? And we as as members of this so, super complex um, people, right? Because our global community is includes those within the country as well as those outside of the country. And whatever we like, like anything else, like what, like all the meanings that we um, ascribe to the food that we eat, to the clothing that we wear, like I, I love a good critique on um, Vietnamese people uh, appropriating their own own identities and their own symbols for the sake of. Um, assimilation or or profit in some cases. I love I love that conversation and that um, challenge, right? But this does not. It's 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 interesting to even hear the questioning or pondering of the choice to wear this clothing because it's not because it is not any more. And I would even argue it's a little bit less meaningful than so many of the other things that we do when it comes to like, you know, just like bond me, bond me everywhere. Right. Like I, I would be interested in diving into that conversation. And what does it look like when the works that we produce are produced uh, in language and in styles that uh, are catered to the ears and the eyes of people who are not who are not us. But in the case of me and you and Jason and Tiku and I wearing the Aoyai, I, I not, for, not for a second did I feel at all that I was tailoring um, the image of how I presented myself to anyone really other than Tiku and I who was who who loves that, who loves what the image, what the visual looks like when the four of us are together on stage, um, united um, and, and and spectacled, um, you know? So it's 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 just a, yeah, I, wow. I, now that you're talking about it, I'm like, oh, we could really get into. Yeah, there's a lot to, there's a lot here to di dissect because it goes back to what you're saying about like all this other appropriation, right? With the banh mi and with pho and with all these other things, you know, I I don't ever think that it's negative to go hypercultural on any of the symbolisms when we are part of that fabric. Now they can argue that, oh, you were born outside of the motherland, whatever. But at the same time, we're satellite editions of that. I mean, that's how I look at me, you know, sometimes I'm just a satellite. Yes edition of the, the what you sent out in 1975 right it's, yeah and we yeah. are vestiges and we are remnants of nine ten generations of Vietnamese that were coming from Vietnam and we are the the outer edges of that western civilization having these eastern footprints and here we are here we yeah. are yeah. And, and the thing, too, is that even within the country, uh, it, each region, each 
each region, each town, each area has a different application or, you know, of of what is the thing that looks right and is right. Right. And so you get into that territory across the board. There isn't that that's kind of that's a whole point. Right. There is no single way right. to present and there is no single way that is valid. And therefore, what you're saying is that you you welcome all of the ways and I would say for me, I I wouldn't necessarily like broad stroke and say I welcome a thousand, you know, a hundred percent all of the ways only because I do want to make that qualifier is um, the in the intent behind it, the what you are doing it for does matter. Right. And so if the purposes that you are presenting in a certain way and presenting could be the way you dress, the way you eat something, the way you write something, the way you create something. If the way that you do that is has an intention that is catered to a gaze, uh, you know, the way that you are being perceived by a specific uh, demographic, then I would then I I think there's there's ter there's air there's space there to be critical of of what the what the purpose of that is. Um, so I would say, but but otherwise, when it comes to um, it, when it comes to all of these symbols and the meanings that we attach to them, I think that anything anything yeah, goes. Anything you know? goes. But if you think about it, right, fifteen twenty years ago, right, if a bunch of us were walking down the red carpet, I mean, I'm I, like I'm gonna just completely imagine myself as a lay person watching on television from Germany or from Vietnam or from middle America, Arkansas, right? Like I'm watching on TV and there's these, you know, young Vietnamese people now walking the red carpet and they're all in Aoyais. Oh my God, what that would do for myself or my self-esteem. And I'm telling you this because tomorrow it's going to go down. A tourist guide to love comes out on Netflix and it's, you know, basically shot in all Vietnam and has a lot of Vietnamese uh, cast and, you know, the lead is Rachel Lee Cook. If somebody in Germany or Paris sees that these guys are all wearing oh yeah, on a Hollywood red carpet, that changes perceptions. So is it a benefit to do this hyper-culturalist move? And I think yes, 100%. As like the Pakistanis, if they're in their traditional garb, their traditional dress, and they walk the red carpet for a, you know, a movie that they put out. I was going to say Bollywood, but you know, it's India. But let's see. If culturally speaking, you go out and you represent in your your gear, what can be more badass than that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I also think a big part of this and i don't know how it was for you um you know putting it on i know that you said within a split second you were like i'm in but for me i just happened to have grown up in a family that has this really rich relationship to the oh yeah uh, my mom and my aunt like they they are my aunt in particular too like uh in terms of style and fashion it's just something it's a form of self-expression that is mm. particularly um, important and and big in her life growing up. And so it's not 
just the Aoyai, but of course the Aoyai is a huge part of it. And my, and if you met my aunt, she is not at all the kind of person who's like, you know, that, that generation's version of pride, you know, she's not necessarily like that, but she loves, she loves beautiful things. She loves beautiful garb. And as a result, like my entire life, the closet has been filled with these Aoyai and it's not, you know, it's not wrong to not be doing that. And it's not wrong to be doing that. Right. And so the just e- even the idea of like showing up a whole crew of Vietnamese people showing up to the red carpet in the Aoyai also like it's 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 if you feel comfortable doing then that then the impact uh, on the representation, like the impact of seeing that visually, like you're saying, is 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 big you know at, but at the same time it's also like no pressure you know that's how that's how i feel about like across the board for all of this it's like i don't want to feel pressure to not do it and i don't want to feel pressure to do it i i feel that if we if it resonates with us and if we feel good like if our bodies feel good um presenting in that way then it's an ama- then why the hell not right um, okay, yeah. I'm going to segue with pre- this idea of presenting in that way, because this is related to how you read Dust Child. In some segments, there were accents that you had to replicate in different characters, which you executed fantastically. But in my mind, I was like, oh, that's an interesting choice to read it this way, because mm-hmm. it's how the reader or the listener is like, if again, if you're in if you're in a different part of the world and you're not Vietnamese and you're listening to this, I kept thinking, oh, what was Quing's mindset in deciding to read it? I mean, could you have read it in different ways or was it an American who grew up uh, in the Vietnamese, you know, a Vietnamese American who imagined what the Vietnamese would sound like? Because there's a million ways you could have taken it, right? Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if there was any consideration with the different ways that you could have, and, and I'm not talking about the English reading of 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 the um, all the main characters, but there was times where you had to replicate a sort of uh, Vietnamese English, uh, but of somebody speaking uh, a, a broken English in the Vietnamese accent. So I like I, and you did it for a lot of the books that you read. So I don't think we've ever addressed it. And I want to hear it because this is something that we're talking about the hypercultural and you know a gaze and appropriation and all that and so wondering what the the decision and how to take one direction versus another yeah 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 so i i feel because there is only one specific character in dust child that has a so when when you hear that character speaking in english you can hear a slight Vietnamese accent, right? Is it so? Ting, yeah. Okay, look at right. you, <laughs> reading comprehension, <laughs> listening <laughs> comprehension. I got I, no reading comprehension. Perfect. I, I I'm glad that I nailed it. Uh, <laughs> very nice, very nice. And you said Tien, but the way that I pronounce it in the book is Tieng, right? Because we kept it. We kept it Nam. We didn't keep. We didn't go too deep into like um like the like the Bac Liu accent, you know. Um, we so so I tried to take into consideration all of the geographical contexts of each of those characters, and 
and kind of have an overall approach to it that is relatively neutral, but Southern. And uh, in the case of Ping, he is the only character who consistently is, so he is a Vietnamese man living in Vietnam. He's a uh, former Vietnam Cộng Hòa, so uh, Army of the Republic of Vietnam uh, soldier. And he now works as a translator or interpreter uh, for people in general, uh, like, you know, non-Vietnamese people, but in the cases that you see him in, in the book, it's for war vets that are coming back to Vietnam. And in this case, I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. In this case, a war vet who's coming back um, and intending to search for right. um, a, uh, in, a search for somebody who he had, you know, an intimate relationship, a Vietnamese woman that he had an intimate relationship with during the war. Um, Thieng is the only character who has this constant interfacing with an American, you know, a white American uh, subject, subjects, um, two, two people, um, a, a couple. And as a result, uh, for me, in order to accurately portray the interactions between um, Dan, Linda, and Thieng, so that, that's the couple and Thieng, it, I think it would, like, the way that I narrate and the way that I prepare is I'm seeing everything play out. It's just like a movie, right? It's all playing out in front of me. And it's a weird experience because I'm trying to live, I'm living inside the characters, but I'm also seeing it all happen. And in this case, it has to be what I did, right? It, um, there was no other way to do it. It had to be a the 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 that man the vietnamese um man who's speaking in english and it has to come out with that that slight accent and also not to mention that uh the way that tiko mai wrote was with that subtlety oh, as wow. well hmm. yeah 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 and so luckily i didn't have to like figure it all on my own because i have the the writing doing the speaking wow. right so oh. it that's 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 a that's a huge part of it, at least for those characters. And then when it comes to the other characters who are speaking in who are technically speaking in Vietnamese, but the text is English, English. you will never hear me say any of those right. lines with an with a with a there's a, there's a specific tenderness though that comes out when you're speaking what's supposed to be in Vietnamese that's mm. done in English. Yeah. I, that's just my interpretation. That's, yeah, yeah. And so for me, the characters that are speaking to each other in Vietnamese, but you're seeing the text as English, uh, uh, similar to what I'm saying about what I'm visualizing in the process, is I don't ever allow record to hit until I feel these the, the people. I feel the relationship. And so, on a case, it's in the case of the the two young women, the two young girls that are in in the book. Um, for for those characters, I had spent a lot of time with footage of of young of young girls. Um, I had actually had posted a little bit about this. There, the, one one documentary in particular. Um, 
it's 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 a it's a short doc by uh, a director in in Vietnam, uh, Mai Huynh Di, who did a a short doc called Down the Stream. Uh, in that documentary, there are these young uh, stateless children, um, so people who live on in, in the water, um, and they share their perspectives about the world, their relation, you know, their 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 family, their parents, their their futures, and there are there's a girl in that doc who I, I didn't even remember what she had said prior prior to this visual coming to me but when I returned to it in preparation for dust child she had said um that she all she wants is to be able to pay off her her mom's debt like that was I don't I didn't remember that pri prior to rewatching it and but for some reason so I I felt called to to watch that like mm -hmm. and so in the development of the character Jang and Quinn I kind of like I take in these pieces I take in like stories I've read, pictures I've seen, videos and films I've watched and people that I have spent time with. And I kind of just like, it, for lack of better words, like ingest it yeah. and then sit with it and allow it to grow, right? So like, what does that young girl desperate to pay off her mom's debt at six years old, what does she look like and sound like at 12? And how does she interact with her sister, right? What is that relationship like? So um, thank you for sharing with me like that it sounds tender to you because I don't actually ever know how it lands. All I know is that for me, like I hold them. I hold the characters with me when I'm in the studio with um, with like deep, like yeah. it's almost like feeling like you have to do right by by someone. Um, so I hold them with great tenderness and I hold their the relationships that they have with each other with with great tenderness. And so in any moments that that breaks too in the narrative, that's something that I start feeling internally. Yeah, so uh, for audience is audience who have not uh, picked up the book and if reading is a daunting task, uh, listening to Queen read the book is a very awesome experience. And um, touring with the book uh, as somebody who's sitting from the outside looking at you and Chikwemai, can you tell me about the experience of touring around with this beast of a woman? She is non, she's like, an, like non, she's like a robot. And just, you know, Vietnam. <laughs> a Lincoln, monster. She's a monster. Just looking at her tour dates will make your head spin. It's like, how does she have the time to, and I know she's probably like, you know, not just, you know, showing up, but she's also like making notes and she's also like doing other logistical things as she's moving on the road. So it's like a nonstop thing for Chikwemai. But what was it like? What was the experience like touring with her? Oh my gosh, I was so tired. <laughs> we did six events together within, um, I don't even know how many days, like five days. Yeah. Uh, so there were two days where we had two no there was one day that we had two events but one day that was travel plus event and then the morning after 
Yo, I don't know. I've been telling I've been telling a lot of people and of course I joke around about it with her as well. It is completely insane. Um and 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 some people ask me too like but why why did she why did she do that? Why did she like have all these events stacked up? And one of the things that, you know, for for folks who are wondering how does somebody end up with a tour that is that intense? A big part of it is that when developing the tour schedule, she has dates set, right, for certain events. And as bookstores and organizations find out that she's going to be there, they they request. try to develop and request another event. And the dates are already set, flights are booked, and so then they end up adding events onto the, any of the spaces in between. Then, of course, you got to account for interviews, right? Press requests and all of those things. So for me, it was so it was so fun, uh, first and foremost. Um, I and this is the second time, excuse me, this is the second time that I've done some some events with her. And it's wild to me how much I learn at every single program. What, what are you learning? What what specifically have you learned? I so for example, the how radically compassionate she is and how subtly <laughs> subversive she is. The things that she talks about. Okay, I'll give an example. We did an event, a luncheon that was like 90% women and 90% and and I think 100% of those women were white women and I one of the things that so this is an example of the kind of things I learn or something that hits me as I'm sitting there is the kind of stuff that she's talking about is about let's just put it in plain words she's talking about the American men going to a foreign country and having sex consensual or non-consensual with people when they have wives and families at home like this is not easy this is, topics this is a, this is as gritty as it gets for some of these for some of these folks right and so you're sitting in this you, you know we're sitting at this luncheon eating a salad and she's literally plastering in your face these men you know had sex while they had wives at home in you know so on and so forth and you just have an entire audience sitting there <laughs> like in the awe crying whereas in so many and i'm sure you know i know we've traversed and and tried to have all kinds of communications and interactions with people these things are hard to talk about people get angry people get defensive in some cases it's uh re-traumatization and the ability to absorb and feel and appreciate the the reality of what she's talking about is very difficult so it demands so what i said earlier is like a radical compassion what it i think that the only way you get there is with that right like when somebody hears you talking about these things that you don't want to 
hear about or talk about, but they're doing it with a kind of like a open, yeah. broken, open, bleeding heart in front of you. Then instead the opposite thing happens from what we're used to, which is just like all eyes, all ears, hyper focus and like an, a, a, um, an open heart that is matched with that. So that's an example of, of the kind of lessons that I'm like watching happen. And that's completely unique, by the way, because that kind of interaction and moment only occurred then. And then the next event that I go to is us sitting with a group of 10 high school students. And what I'm learning in that moment is completely different than as well. Like the ability of this, you know, uh, 16 year old high schooler and how they're receiving this um, a war that they had not even been particularly familiar with prior to that moment versus in that moment, by the way, at that luncheon, the there was a woman who talked about her husband being in Vietnam and she was crying as she thanked Mai for doing this for producing this work yeah wow that's fascinating yeah it's yeah. so fascinating and you know um when you and I had kind of first met uh we did our podcast and then we had moved along with the idea that I'd go cook uh, a lunch for Chikwe Mai. And this was like October of 2021, uh, roughly before mm -hmm. October. And then so we run into our, our dear friend, uh, Dr. Bao, and he says, I'm, I want to hug. If I ever met this author, I want to hug. Not knowing like my affiliation, he didn't know you at the time. That's the kind of effect that Chikwe Mai has on people. And I bring this up all the time because we come from very different backgrounds. We come from uh, Vietnamese American families that have a certain uh, outlook about Vietnamese uh, government, Vietnamese people in Vietnam. And for a complete stranger to come up to me and say, you know, if I ever met the writer of um, The Mountains Sing, I'm going to give this woman a hug. Uh, we don't know each other. This man and myself, we we don't know each other, but that bonds us, right? And this yeah. is some, not somebody who is an American writer, a Vietnamese American writer. It's a Vietnamese writer from Vietnam that could create these bonds between two grown ass men in America. And now we could see the proliferation of her work, uh, her heart coming out into, you know, we just need to have more of Chikwe Mai's in the world too, because that is a very uniting force, whether it's for Vietnam or Ukraine or wherever. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I actually said to her, we were fin finishing our programs in San Diego and we were about to go to Vegas and I was driving in the car and I turned to her and I said, did you ever, did you ever think that this would be your life? That you would be surrounded by people who absolutely love you. This is like pure pure love the things that you witness at book events and also i just want to say too it is so freaking cool going to book events because it attracts a certain type mm -hmm. of person librarians teachers oh my god just like and 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 the way that they engage with the work and the, and the conversation is so distinct and it's so alive. It's just the best, right? Which is a part of why, even though I find the schedule completely insane, 
but I also get it, right? Because you're you're talking about pure love, just like in constant circulation and in moment. It, sorry, in circulation and alive in all of these moments. And I think for for Tikwe Mai, she one of the things she says like this is one of the things she said during the last book tour that stuck with me um, is that when you write a book you're writing words onto a page and it is the audience and each of the readers who help the the book come alive right so it, it mm. so you really watch that happen and that's why it makes sense that the more she can do the more people that she can be with um the, the mm. like she will it always lives. answer yes it lives right you're literally watching uh, something come to life. It is not the same thing. It is different at every stop with every person. Um, it's 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 life force, you know. And and go, what you were saying about uh, the the uniting power of somebody like that, like I, anybody, I just I want to know. I want to almost I almost want to have like a a debate with somebody who who has any other opinion on how powerful this type of um this type of work can be right which is it's like soft compassionate work um it's talking about peace right and I, there are moments in the book tour that i had with Mai that i um, that I don't necessarily feel I have like the full liberties to share all of the details of conversations we had. But I do want to say that one thing that hit me with like like a like a ton of bricks, like I I walked out of that experience feeling um more deeply than anything else is that she the work she is doing is a thousand percent about creating more compassion in other people. And there's actually, there's something that she had said to me, which was almost like, it was almost like she's the least aggressive person, but it was almost aggressive in nature in saying like, I am not here to sell books. I am here wow. to help people heal. she she really means it you know and i and i hope anybody that has any ounce of doubt about that like come, you know come, come talk to me because i got i got like i just had i had the honor and the privilege to see the inside of it you know yeah i don't think anybody doubts it i mean yeah. it's, you can't fake that right you just yeah. can't can't fake this act yeah yeah you no know, so Chikwe Mai does something that's very, you know, uh, city to city, book reader to book reader. It's a very sort of micro process where you're like trying to affect one open, you open up uh, one one world at a time through through a person at a time, digesting the story that you wrote, right? So, but in the same vein, like we think that people of like that caliber needs to be like this all omnipotent uh, figurehead and they're, you know, and really it just boils down to one reader at a time, right? And where I'm going with this is I know that the work that you do, the extension of like reading to the masses, because you read once, many people listen, but 
you're also involved in something that's very engaging one-on-one, -on -one, which is coaching and teaching. And, you know, I've always thought of that process as like the most highest profession. I mean, many Vietnamese people have that instilled in us that teaching is the highest profession. We don't feel that way in America, but tell me a little bit about like the difference in sort of like this reading once affecting many versus now it's like, I'm learning that, you know, coaching, teaching to a class or to do one-on-one, -on -one, what kind of impact do you feel like you're having and why not stick to this efficient mode of read once, act once, do once, get it out digitally. Why is it so important for you to drill down like Chikwe Mai and go to classroom to classroom or one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, not that many people know that I started, um, when when Ken says teaching, he means um, substitute teaching. I um, I also te uh, teach as as you know I've been doing that I've been tutoring and working with um, with kids of all different ages for like you know for the past twenty years. Um, um, and then the other piece that he's talking about is is coaching, which is um, something that is tied to all of the the training and and facilitation work that I've um, that I've had the opportunity to do since I was very young. Like basically, I started to do that work when I started training uh, as an actor. So I started training as an actor at twelve, um, twelve years old, twelve thirteen, and then at um, around that time, I had the opportunity to learn these incredible skills, um, conflict resolution, nonviolent communication. Um, it, this is just like sheer luck, right? Like how, how freaking lucky and how, how blessed, you know, yeah. that I, a, a teacher was just like, you know what, you want to be a conflict mediator We're we have a three day program at oh. our, you know, and this is not, this is a relatively poorly resourced middle school uh, in San Jose. And, and, you know, I, I was able to get taken out of um, this, uh, my, my classes for three days and learn conflict mediation. And then that same year, I was exposed to leadership and management, project planning, like all, all of this, all of this curriculum and this kind of like practice. And I've stuck with it. So those are like the things I've stuck with, right? The, the leadership, management, conflict resolution, nonviolent communication, and the acting. And, and those things I find are so related um, and I'll, I'll, this will all tie together in, in a little, in a second, you know, I, that is kind of like the origin of uh, how I got to a place where I started working with, um, with people uh, in like a coaching consulting um, capacity one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, because after after years of learning these, what what I would say, what well, what I would call it is the personal and relational material that in our society we don't have the opportunity to to work through and and engage with, right? Like, do you remember at what point in high school you were sorting through complex emotional matters and how to work through those? you know, amongst friends, amongst family members, this is not something or amongst colleagues, right? Yeah. That's, but in, I'm sure, you know, in all of the different professional settings that you have been a part of that the hardest issues are always the emotional ones, right? 
and the things that break <laughs> organizations, companies, you know, governments and movements are also relational matters and emotional matters. And yet we don't have any airtime for those things. Um, and that's a big part of what why I started um, I started doing one-on-one -on -one work uh, other than just the training, uh, running training programs because I got to a place in my life where uh, friends and family members would, would call on me or friend, yeah, friends and family members would call on me to ask about how to work through a complex emotional issue that is happening um, in their households or in their workplace. And I would work with them and talk through that. And in the same vein, uh, I, I, I tutor, uh, you know, so I, I've worked with, um, youth like one-on-one -on -one in different capacities, uh, for, for a really long time, but I got to a place where I just wanted to be in a classroom. You know, I wanted to be amongst like a full group of, of children or a full group of teens and adolescents. Um, and I wanted to be in that world, in that energy, um, and, and to understand it, to understand like what, what it's like, what the landscape is like now. Um, and it's the same thing. Like if I told, could tell you the type of neglect, um, that comes with our education system when it comes to, um, providing the right resources for people, for kids um, and teens to be able to work through their very difficult emotional issues and crises, like that is, yeah, and 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 whatever way, and I feel by I feel so privileged to even have the opportunity wow. to engage with yeah. that. Like my my neighbors are teachers, and I tell them all the time, like you're doing God's work. And they, that is the true, and I, I feel that I felt this before, but now that I started entering classrooms when, when I do, and mind you, I want to be clear too, I don't do this often because the way my schedule is, I don't have the time the, to be doing this every day or even oftentimes not even multiple times a week. But now that I have been there, I believe this is the realest, the truest frontline that exists in the world anywhere right like the classroom anywhere in the world in in all of the different ways that classrooms exist around the world are are the front line and they're the front line because you're interfacing with the some of the most vulnerable not yes some of the most vulnerable yeah. beings in in the world right in their development in their developmental stages um so so yeah i mean the work of the work of acting is to understand what people are fighting for, right? It's understanding people's objectives and like being able to see the humanity in every character and making sure that you do right by that and bring that to life. And I find that coaching and 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 working with people one-on-one -on -one, as well as teaching is like at least in my own personal philosophy of that is to see the person fully and hear them and hold them and then work through whatever it is that they're working through. 
so that's to me is like how all of those pieces have have tied together and and why I love like I'm I love doing it um and yeah and a thing that I think that you love very much is acting in movies and TV and the high idea of acting. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, the sympathizer was in town for six months and it did its thing. It did its shot. And, you know, we have other films that are coming out. We have uh, Asian American content like beef on Netflix. And what's your thought on the current sort of state of affairs of all this um, Asian um, filmmaking and, and television making? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I'm You're in sure the heart you, of everything. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you can imagine how often I get this question from non Asian people too. like, I'll just be having lunch with somebody and people are like, so what do you think? You know, um, I think that we have reached, you know, after Crazy Rich Asians a few years ago, like where we're getting we're 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 getting into that moment that that when when Crazy Rich Asians first popped off and of course naturally there were some there were a lot of us who were celebrating and then some of us who are like oh my god when are we going to get past like just uh, you know displays of grandeur and 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 wealth and things like that and we're uh depending on who who and how you see it like slowly but surely we're getting into that territory right the territory where we can get weird we can get, we can get weird we can get dark uh, in the case of beef, beef we can get we can get angry yeah 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 and i think that it is um it is an amazing it is an amazing time you know and i think that for me being amiss all of this receiving the auditions for for these projects um getting the opportunity to do my my take on it bring myself to those to those um to those pieces um where i am seeing it going is us getting to the place where uh the industry is finally starting starting to be able to imagine um what we people that look like us um are like in those multifaceted characters and it takes all of these very very different projects the projects that you named could not be more different from each other right yeah. um towards guide to love the sympathizer beef totally different from each other um and one of the issues that i have continually run into in this industry and i want to clarify too that it the way the limitations within the industry are not it's not like executives or casting directors it's not like that it is everywhere in all the different people that we interact with that are in some way connected to the industry so when when i'm talking about limited imagination it's like it's kind of like when you first met me you had yeah. Like right before you met me, you were like, oh, I listened to the audiobook and I thought you were an old woman. And you're like, not like that at all. Totally, totally normal because that's the vibe that you 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 absorbed, right? From the mountain but, sing. Yeah. What was that? To, to clarify, from the mountain sing, it I, I mean that's how it reads, right? Like it's like yes. a well, it's like a few generation of women. Yeah. So you have to like take on, yeah. So anyway, just and it's a literal, yeah. He's like, just clarify myself. No, and she's a literal grandma. So yeah. he's not, 
Um, but in terms of like what people are able to imagine when they see somebody who looks like me and like is my size, like is my stature, it's, it's so wild because that's been the biggest struggle. And with each of these projects, you're we're watching the wiggle room of that imagination expand mm, wow Be, because now you know steve young's character is he's just he he is multifaceted he is complex and he is so so angry right and and without a project like that folks are not imagining that like one one thing I want to call out, for example, that we have not seen um, represented uh, so far is like just the ferocity of Asian women. And we're Vietnamese, so let's talk about the ferocity of Vietnamese women, right? This type of like tough as nails, like just endless energy, grit. Like we don't see that, right? And because we don't have that yet in the sphere, and I'm sure we're going to see more and more of it and, and all of the multifaceted characters, men, women, and non-binary folks and the, uh, uh, everyone in between, we're the more we see that, the more there's room for people to allow us to, to play in roles beyond like the Vietnamese character on the show. And my, um, just want to put the industry on blast real quick, but like the amount, amount of times that I receive a script that says Aquafina-esque character, right? That's what happens because the the imagination mm, is limited. so limited. And so the more it expands, the more, and hopefully we get to a place where it's like, you can't even do it anymore, right? There's We're not going to get the script that says Aquafina-esque character because prior to Aquafina, there had to be a breakout so that you can even get there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Great points, great points. Yeah. You know, so we uh, we were, we sat down prior to October, 2021. We're at, you know, at mid-April here, 2023. So let's get another round, um, you know, not to, that's two years apart, right? So we'll just try to get this, every year going because there's so much more developing now um i do want to ask you like what's up what's coming up for you yeah 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 so i uh shot a film uh called supermarket affairs um for those of you those who are listening who are familiar with Jinda, uh, linda jang dai's supermarket love affairs this is certainly uh you know paying paying homage to to that uh that song actually i was um, at an event for, um, about new wave uh, Vietnamese music just last Friday, uh, this amazing panel uh, between um, Elizabeth I, who's working on the the, the documentary about uh, new wave Vietnamese music, and um, on that panel was Lang Yung Tao, Thuy Bảo Đăng. Possibly everyone that was on that panel has been on your show, um, <laughs> but. <laughs> uh that and i i was there and then they did a karaoke session of supermarket love affairs in the middle of the panel and uh and it was just funny because um the film that i i worked on the short that i had the opportunity to to um to act in alongside uh, Nguyen Thị Minh Ngoc, uh is is making its festival rounds right now so we'll see where else it lands 
but uh, we've, uh, yeah, we've gone international. So we're, uh, I don't know if it already aired, but it, it got to uh, to Osaka International Film Festival. Oh, wow. um, it's making a premiere in, in Seattle uh, shortly. It uh, is gotten to Cinequest in San Jose. And it's just going to kind of continue. So that's the that's the one project that is currently, you know, moving around. Um, and it's 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 cool that it kind of intersects with these pieces that these this pieces and cult cultural items that are are circulating in the Vietnamese community right now. So that's something to to look out for. And yeah, and that's uh, oh, and then and then uh, the the I'm going to be narrating a trilogy. Um, that is uh, coming out soon. The first of the trilogy is coming out. It's Thea Kwanson, Um, and it's a Southeast Asia um, inspired fantasy uh, sci-fi romance war epic <laughs> trilogy. So that it, it so it's not a Vietnamese uh, themed book. No, 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 no. no awesome. Southeast Asia, not Vietnamese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's something else that's on the horizon for me. Are you seeing more Vietnamese projects come across your your way? Yeah, 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 for uh, for sure. I mean, um, this. I mean, with all the projects that you named, it already started right um, about a year to a year and a half ago. You, where I was starting to see a lot of like the Vietnamese specific um, projects, and and a part of what I was saying about the expansion of the imagination is i love these projects i think they're amazing just like the project that i was just naming supermarket affairs um but i also and i am excited to see how that expands our capacity to be playing uh all, very very complex um characters uh beyond just like the vietnamese the Vietnamese yeah, characters. Absolutely. On, uh, and I'd love to see you in more like different roles that just are not part of uh, just the Vietnamese cinema, you know, um, projects or landscape, you know, it'd be awesome yeah. to just see you represented on screen as and a character in, in any story, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because like, I'll give you an example really quick. You know, when I w <sighs> She shall not be named, but I was uh, doing a shoot, a photo shoot with, uh, and I, the makeup artist was, was talking to me and she actually asked me about the second set of photos that we were going to take. And the second set of photos was going to be like more uh, businessy, like boss, yeah. boss style, you know? <laughs> and she said to me, white woman, she said to me, uh why why are you taking a photo like that like a boss like a ceo style photo and i said uh well, she goes oh i i you know i don't this isn't meant to be uh, you know this, please don't take this the wrong way at all but i'm just why why would you take a photo as a ceo like you would never get a care you would never get she didn't say um, that. It, no, second she part. Said, she said it. You. She said you would never get. Um. No, she didn't even say that you would never get the part. She said you would never get an audition for a CEO type character. You look way too. She's like, do you know what you like? Do you know how young you look? 
you would never get that audition. And I'm no, and I, she's like, I'm just saying this. I've been, you know, that's a compliment. I've been in the industry for, uh, you know, 40, 40 years now. You just wouldn't get that because you look way too young. Meanwhile, so, there's so many fucking like female Asian CEOs in the United States. There are a lot. There's not just like a handful. There's a lot. It's crazy. Yeah. And guess what? Some of them look, some of them are literally much younger than I am. And some of them also look, you know, yeah. that's, but that's what I mean. Right. And when I mean that the, the, the limited imagination leads mm -hmm. far deeper than, than we, when, than we understand. And that is why the, the rise of these projects that present us differently are, is a really powerful thing to, to, to expand that imagination that is ultimately limiting, has been limiting us all. Well, I, I can now say this. Um, I thank you for your friendship in the, over the last few years now. So I can actually say over the last few years, I look for many, many more years of friendship and for you to come on to the podcast as frequent as you have projects, uh, which I hope are much more often than every two years. Yes, yes, yes. I thank you for your friendship. Um, it's been amazing to start off simply because you have this podcast and now you know we're homies for real yeah well i don't know about homies it's more like i'm a mentee and your mentor you have schooled me on so many ways of uh the media um sort of the media life and understanding really gender dynamics and what is proper and what's improper so i really you know hats off to you for for really really showing me the way many many times Thank you. Keeping me out of hot water. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Ken. Thank you, Queen. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.